You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Today, I I was on the way to the uh, studio to record. I had to stop and get lunch really quick. At, okay. At the gas station. Right is, down it, r- is that where you're eating your lunch? Yeah. That's a great decision, by no, the way. Yeah. 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 Is it the, the wrinkled it's up not, hot look, dogs look, on, the, look, on the rollers? It, look, it's not. No. Although, I don't get the hot dogs. I get the steak taquito. Oh, um, Not today. I didn't get the steak taquito today. But I had to eat, right? I can't come All in right, here and okay. do two, three hours of recording on, on an empty stomach. That's crazy. Um, so, I had to go in. And I decided to get me a little chicken sandwich, you know, so I have something to snack on. And as I get in, I'm like thinking to myself, just they got the music kind of loud in this racetrack. Look at the okay. music's a little loud. The ra- you're at the racetrack gas station. Yeah, okay. the, the little got gas it. station. And I'm like, oh, music's kind of loud. Anyway, I get my chicken sandwich. I start walking up to the front. I'm like, man, this doesn't seem, I think this is like, is this, are we listening to rap music in the racetrack and it's this loud? Like, it doesn't seem very racetrack brand because I'm, I think they're like a Christian company. Um, okay. You know, that's, so it seems off brand that it's a very loud rap music. I get in line and I realize why I've been so overstimulated by the, by the rap music. There's a man in front of me checking out. He had a backpack on. Okay. In his backpack speaker no playing his like like his soundtrack like, who do you think you are denzel walking through the world so he's just a, he's just soundtrack? a mobile a mobile dj party he had his own on. little soundtrack going wherever he went and mind you he's sitting there having a conversation with the the cashier like nothing's wrong like with, the, like he isn't the biggest asshole with the sound coming out of his backpack full blast in the store full on Ought to be against the law. Ought to be against the law. And the guy, the guy was asking me. He's like, "Hey, hey, you gotta, swipe. <laughs> you gotta swipe the car." And I'm like, "Ah, what are we doing?" I can't. Why did you say? I said you need a bag. What? No, I'm trying to get the hell out of here. It was. It was so insensitive. I wanted to. I had to. I had to decide for myself. Okay. If I was going to confront this man or not, because I wanted to go, hey man, just, just going. To, we just need to turn that down. Hey, hey, hey. We how? How did not, you? How would you imagine that conversation would go? Well, that's once I imagined it, I realized that I wasn't going to say it's not going to because the type of person that plays their music out loud doesn't in, care about in, me. In the yeah. era of there are headphones, there are things that headphones have been around for a while. Right? Yes. The type of person that disregards that, plays it out loud, is not the type of person that's going to have a real positive reaction to you um, noticing it. He's not going to. Uh, he, he's he's already demonstrated himself to be inconsiderate. So it, yeah, it was um, it was one of the more curious things I've seen. I wanted to share that with you. I saw kids at a really nice restaurant one time. I mean, a, a nice super nice restaurant and this family was dining out and they had brought their kids. Now this is a restaurant I would not have brought kids to. Right. And they had set their kids up with an iPad. Okay. I I wouldn't have done that. 
at this restaurant either. And the kids are playing games. No headphones. Disrespectful. Oh, I was so irritated. You get to, uh, if that kid gets up from the table, you're allowed to, legally, you're allowed to trip them. Oh, is that right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you can trip them. Good to know. Yeah. What's missing in both of those stories is mindfulness on the part of these gross offenders. (laughs) And mindfulness is key to a positive decision-making framework. Today, we talked to an expert in decision-making frameworks and an expert in mindfulness, Dr. Nika Kabiri. Dr. Nika Kabiri earned her PhD in sociology from the University of Washington with a focus on choice theory and institutional analysis. She's a former faculty member at the University of Washington, where she taught decision science. She earned her JD from the University of Texas. Currently, she serves as Senior Director of Decision Science at Clio, where she helps transform the legal industry and improve access to justice through better decision-making the author of Amazon number one bestseller, Money Off the Table, Decision Science, and The Secret to Smarter Investing. She's got a new book coming out in 2023. We will make sure to bring her back into your world uh, when that is near release. I learned a lot from this conversation. Our big takeaways were not judging decisions based on their outcomes, um, fundamental attribution error, And we evaluated the risk, how we evaluate risk differently when making decisions for ourselves versus making decisions for someone else. So stick around, listen to our conversation with Dr. Nika Kabiri. You're going to learn something. And please remember when getting gas, uh, put your headphones in. I'm Sanger Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Dr. Kabiri. Hi. Hey. Decision-making experts come to the field either through a lifetime of wonderful decision-making or a lifetime of horrible decision-making, which inspires <laughs> them to learn. Okay, it's that's horrible. what I thought. That's me too. <laughs> if you hadn't said that, I was going to say that for you. I, think oh, the, yeah, yeah. I don't know if an expert can have can admit to good decision-making. I don't think that's like a litmus test if anyone admit says Admit to good decision-making? Yeah. Like if they if they believe they've been a good decision-maker, then they're totally not an expert. No, I would never. I, would, <laughs> I always make great decisions. I would never yeah. listen to anybody mm-hmm. who said that. <laughs> You just want to avoid learning too many things the hard way, as they say. You know, you you want to learn through other people's experiences, uh, other people's uh, stories and books. Yeah, Uh, you know, get inspired by by a couple of you know slip ups, and then and then the rest of it learn academically. Exactly, that's been my my journey, I guess. And it's do do you get pressure from people who want to believe that you always make great decisions because of your background? You know, that's a really interesting question. No one's ever asked me that before. I think when most people come to me or talk to me about decision-making, they're thinking about themselves, honestly. They're not really, Mm. they don't seem to care much about whether I've had a lot of good luck or bad luck or Mm. good decision-making or not. Um, And then they rely on their own deal. Yeah. They're kind of, yeah, they're a little bit, I mean, understandably self-focused and yeah. And I, they like the, they come to me for my academic knowledge more than my personal knowledge, which is so you it's everyone's personal experiences is, is unique. And so, I mean, who am I to tell anybody else what's right or wrong just based on my life? Well, you, yeah. t- you took a hard turn into the decision science area. How, how did that start? How did you start uh, that journey? 
there was like a personal, like a personal track. And then there was like a professional track and they sort of happened simultaneously. So it started with just being really a basket case in my twenties. It's kind of a derogatory way to describe it, but I was really depressed. Um, I was suicidal. I was um, just not doing well and nothing was working. Like therapy wasn't working. Medication wasn't working. Um, friends didn't know what to do. Family didn't know what to do. And I think I just woke up one morning and I was like, nothing is working. I've got to make different decisions. Like, I don't know what else to do. And so around that time, as I was trying to like straighten out my life shortly after that, I, I, went to grad school for sociology and started learning about how, you know, people make choices and um, slowly got into a program where I was studying under like the, the thinkers and rational choice theory, like Michael Hector and Carl Dieter Opp. And I, I know this is not, these are names may not be familiar to people outside of the field, but in the discipline, they're like the dudes, right? They're the people. Yeah. Um, and I got to study directly under them and really learn. And I just kept applying what I learned academically to my personal life because I needed to. And it I just kept working. And so that's kind of, that's kind of my, how I ended up here. You went from Rice straight over and got a graduate degree and. Oh, no, I made a bad decision. Okay. I went to law school, which is not inherently a bad decision, but it was for me. Oh, why is that? I don't think I was, and I don't think most people are when they choose either a career or a a major or they don't really do it well informed enough. You kind of assume, you know, like, and this is, you know, from behavioral economics, this is this idea of wizzy like everything that you think, you know, is all there is to know. And I didn't quite ask myself what I needed to know that I didn't. And so I just kind of dove in thinking, Oh, this is what law this is what a career in law is going to look like. And I'm going to do that. And it's not, it wasn't that I wasn't going to, you know, necessarily be going to argue in front of the Supreme Court and changing the world. I, a lot of the stuff that lawyers do is just paper pushing and you're really, you get really lucky to be, um, to have those opportunities. So I just didn't know. Was it a bad decision because you were uninformed about the future? So I like this question because it's really asking what a bad decision is, I think. And you, I, I tend to advise people not to judge the quality of a decision on the outcome because there right. are so many variables right. that affect the outcome yeah. and variables that are beyond your control. So because I didn't follow a really rigorous, thoughtful process for a decision like that, because it's a big decision, it's a high stakes decision, it's hard to reverse, I would say I, I decided poorly. But that was before I know everything that I know now. And so that's why I call it that a bad, not such a great decision. Well, it's kind of evidenced by the fact that you're not a lawyer right now. (laughs) 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 That might not have been a great choice. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't blame you. I saw uh, my, my sister and her husband uh, went through law school and they were attending school in the same city uh, that I live in. And um, no, meeting those people, don't envy their path in life at all. It seems like a real tough road of of paper pushing and reading very boring yeah. uh, materials. I don't th- it doesn't have to be. I mean, I, <sighs> well, I mean, I I think the law gives you a basis for understanding how decisions are made. I, I think that that's super yeah. helpful. Sure. I have to say, lawyers or law school trains you in rational thinking. 
Like whether people actually apply that in their real lives or not, that's a different issue. But it there is like a rational, reasonable man standard. There's these like the rules of court procedure. They're all based on this, the importance of eliminating bias in deciding an outcome of a, of a dispute or a case. But I would say, I think people would say the same about your professions, like finance, money, like there are a lot of different, it, it totally depends on who you are. It's not very fun if, yeah, right. a lot of people don't think it's very it. fun. Right. <laughs> if you're, I'm into it. I like it, you know, but uh, I love when I meet with people and they go, man, I wouldn't want your job. That's poof. no way. Like, I would Great. I'm glad oh. you feel that way because that's why I have one. Yes. Because uh, if yes. you loved it and you, you know, then I'd be out of work. But So you realize in law school or after law school that you've made a bad choice? I realized in law school and um, I think I just felt, you know, parental pressure to finish Sure. I felt like also, and that was, I understood where that came from because, um, you know, every decision you make opens a set of options up for you and closes you off to others. And if I looked at, you know, the potential um, option set available to me, if I had a law degree versus different, didn't, it just seemed larger. It just seemed like I could do everything I wanted plus more if I just had that degree. So I thought, why not? Like, get it, yeah. and then and then pivot, change course. From that point, when you you realized that you've made a bad decision, did you realize what bad decision making was, or did you realize I don't like law school? No, I was I was your average, uneducated about decision making person, and I like like people do because we're human. I was listening to my gut. I was listening yeah. to my feelings. I was going with what seemed right. I was looking for clues from the universe because I didn't really, I hadn't been, I hadn't gone through that academic training or that rigorous training of like, this is how the brain works. This is, this is mm -hmm. why listening to your gut isn't really the best thing to do. This is, you know, I didn't know all that. So yeah, it just felt wrong. It just felt like, you know, honestly, it just felt like if I became a lawyer, I was going to die. <laughs> That's what it felt like. <laughs> yeah. That's a spiritual death. That's and a pretty good sign then that you, know, you need to move on. Now you right. went, you went from there and, and went up, ended up getting your PhD in sociology, uh, focusing on uh, choice theory, right? Exactly. So that to 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 nerds like Sanger and I who like decision uh, information and, and decision discussions, that seems like that would be fascinating <laughs> to, to other people. It may not, but to me, it really sounds like it would be fascinating. It's, it's so cool because it's really, it was, it was taking economic models of decision-making and applying it to, um, to, uh, you know, sociological phenomenon. So why, oh, here's a great, here's a great example. I was really into studying protests and revolution and riots. Like it's a, a high risk decision to, to participate in a riot yeah, or a protest. Boy, no, no kidding. So why do people do it? And why, why is it hard to get more than two or three people to do it? Or um, why do riots or protests or revolutions happen in this situation and not in that situation? And whereas other um, sociological approaches might look at other types of explanations, rational choice theorists would look at the individual and how each individual makes decisions and even how their decisions are influenced by others through bandwagon effects or things like that, through social networks 
and how these individual decisions all kind of come together to create this, oh my gosh, now we have a revolution. How, how the heck did that happen? Um, and also the other way around, because we don't often think about how our institutions shape the decisions that we make. So yeah. school, family, workplace, like what you wear every day, you think it's your choice, but it's really shaped by these cultural institutions. And um, so it's kind of that that relationship between the big picture constraining our decisions and then us kind of shaping the big picture through our decisions. So it would seem to me when you look at the decision to participate in, in a protest like that, you know, a large scale protest, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about that, is, is that those people who do that, you look at what's going on uh, boy, in, in Iran right now, look at what's going on in Russia, look at what happened uh, even January 6th in our country, is that many of those people either feel like they don't have a seat at the table. In other words, my voice isn't being heard in, in you know, if it's not, then I'm going to break a window and you're going to listen to me now. Or they feel like the game is rigged, right? It's just stacked, the deck is stacked against me. It's not fair. Right. Is, is it, is right. there, are there other things that lead to that? Yeah. I think one assumption we make about people who participate in those types of movements is that everyone who does it has the same motivation and they're all doing it for the same reasons mm-hmm. and they often are not. And another assumption is that those decisions are rational. Um, a lot of a lot of the time people engage in movements, especially um, political movements, because of their identities and how they identify with other people who are associating with the movement. Um, so for instance, especially with like riots, like people think that there's some sort of rational reason or maybe an emotional, irrational reason and a impulsive reason for, for engaging in things like that. And some research has shown that it's really just a group of people who have the same identity, who share the same sort of like, you know, we are all women, we are all, um, uh, you know, African-American, we're all the same kind of person and we want to do this together. So there's a lot of other, there are a lot of other things going on too, but it's also important to note, and th- there's a, a bias around this, it's called fundamental attribution error. This is idea that like you're, you attribute people's behavior to their character or their personality. A lot of what happens in revolutions and even, you know, smaller scale movements has nothing to do with the people, has to do with the context. So is there opportunity? Are there mechanisms for um, cooperation or collaboration? Like social media has become a powerful mechanism for people involved in QAnon to organize and to do things that they may not have had the ability to do before. So if those mechanisms aren't in place... Um, that doesn't matter how bad you have it. Like you just aren't going to be able to do anything about it. Well, but weren't there those types of large scale uprisings before the on, on Veta, the uh, oh, yeah. internet oh, yeah. sure that happened, right? Totally. And that happened because people met in, you know, uh, little coffee shops, like intellectuals or in universities, right. Where people were kind of all in the same place and they had the means to communicate and collaborate. I think social media has just made it so much easier for everyone to kind of be part, to be connected and can participate in things. Um, But the question isn't, it's not just like it happened, right? But it's also, it also didn't happen a lot of times, right? When it maybe should have. And perhaps the reason was because that opportunity wasn't there or those mechanisms were not there. Do you think people are making rational decisions to say, I'm going to go participate in this? Or do you think they just can't? get caught up in the emotion of it and get swept up with well, the way they can't be 
all rational. I mean, it can't even be that the majority of people are rational. I mean, right. you, you're, I don't think people are going to sit there and weigh the pros and cons of, well, I'm going to go light this church on fire tonight or whatever it is. Like you're going in, if you're rioting or protesting, you are only doing that against a very capable institution, a very strong institution. Otherwise they're not worthy of like rioting against. (laughs) So, so I'm risking a lot, right? I'm risking a lot to go riot and to go protest. And if I feel like rioting and protesting is my only option, then whether it's true or not, I believe that this institution could inflict great harm on me, not only has the capability, but but probably has the desire to do that. So right. that can't be rational, I would say. I mean, maybe as I'm I don't want to discredit some people who make the the rational choice, but I would imagine that the rational thought is done by the leaders of those movements. I was I was just I was just gonna say that. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. There again, like there are different players in any movement and there are leaders. There are even some would say entrepreneurs. This idea of an ideological entrepreneur is something that um, sociologi- sociologists talk about, which is it's not so much like I want to lead these people to overthrow the government because I think we have a better future. It's It could be because I think I could benefit personally, and so I'm yeah. going to capitalize or exploit the situation. There are a lot of you know, different players, different reasons. Um, But when you're thinking about when you're weighing like, oh my gosh, you know, I could suffer for standing up or revolting. Um, A rational thinker would be weighing that against what I would get for the risk. And the reality is, I mean, a a lot of movements, people are going to benefit greatly, right? This country was founded on a, on a, on a really risky movement. And, and those people did benefit, you know, not only the leaders of the movement, but the, the foot soldiers of the movement benefited. Not every movement's that way. I can't imagine, though, that, that the foot soldiers say, well, you know what, uh, in about a year and a half, two years time here, you know, my tax rate's going to be lower. <laughs> like, right. you know, it's, it's like, no, they're, 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 they're um, inebriated by highly motivating emotions. They're, they're consumed by anger or envy or whatever, um, whether their cause is justified, you know, Hey, if I can get these people emotionally enthralled and, and the cause is the motivation to, to kind of stir the pot of that feeling, well, then I can get irrational actions out of these people. Right. And, and, right. and a lot of the, the choices that need to be made to, to have something like a successful revolution require a lot of irrational choices, just like a, a, an army is not going to be f- made up fully of rational thinkers, right? You, maybe your general is a rational thinker, but on the front lines, when you're making a choice on whether to jump on a live grenade, you don't have the time to sit there and go, well, you know, right. I'm going to yeah. get the honor and the legacy, but then again, I'm not going to have any legs. So let me go ahead and jump on the grenade. No, you're just doing it consumed by um, these ideas that are larger than, than you. I mean, but let's let's get let's get real. Most of us aren't rational most of the time. Ever, right? Yeah. Like, whether you're general. trying right, whether you're deciding to join a revolt or take a job or buy one brand of potato chips over another. And this is companies, businesses do this all the time, right? They try to tap into people's emotions. They try to tap into people's identities. Um, they they really branding is all about, you know, those 
those promises that really get at maybe the less rational, more you know heuristic side of of the human brain. So um, I think it's it's not just in those high risk situations; it's in every situation where we're just we're really usually taking shortcuts and using biases and being influenced by people around us. Do you find that there's a certain type of decision making that people have more difficulty improving at, whether that's you know personal relationship decision making mm. or financial decision making or you know choice selection, you know, as a yeah. consumer? That's a really great question. I think I would probably categorize easy and difficult decisions in terms of like access to information. So decisions that are hard to get information about or to understand information about are probably harder to make. And I think that's why, for instance, medical decisions or or financial decisions, because you aren't a medical doctor, you aren't a financial expert, you have to kind of rely. I think that's why people just offload their decisions onto experts because it's hard for them to know, well, I don't know what to do. I don't, I can't be informed enough. I can't know enough. So, um, those are really challenging. I think also decisions that, well, I don't know if people feel like this is difficult, but it's difficult to make your own good decisions when you're in a, in a social group. Like, I mean, a research from like group think all the way to bandwagon effects have like, uh, demonstrated that people act against their best interests for the, in the in favor of the majority or what the majority wills. Those are really diff, it's really difficult to fight that to stand alone or to to buck the 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 norm or buck the trend and and do what you want to do. But there is a lot of research also on just the the architecture of decisions. Like if you have too many options, if you have too many negative trade offs, if if the uh, if there are too many, if the trade offs are so equal, like. The pros and cons of option A are so similar to the pros and cons of option B. Those decisions can be really difficult too. And in those decisions, I usually say just throw, you know, roll the dice or something. If it's, if it's similar, then yeah. why belabor it? So back to rational decision-making in your own life. Mm-hmm. How rational was it at the time to pursue a doctorate in this field? Oh, I don't think I followed a rational process. I think well, if you did, okay, then you would have to get the doctorate. You'd, Let me just ah, good, uh, yeah, I'm trying to be I'm honest. Like, I think it, it was semi-rational okay, in the sense fair. that I had a clear vision of my end game. I had a clear vision of where I wanted to be. So I wasn't just thinking in the moment, like, oh, it'd be cool to be in grad school right now. I wanted a life doing pretty much what I'm doing right now, where I'm learning, writing, educating, speaking, um, and just kind of this like, you know, revolving door of information, knowledge in, knowledge out, knowledge in, knowledge out. Um, and that's what I wanted. And so I kind of thought about, well, under what, this is what I advise clients to do now. It's like, under what conditions is that possible? Like how, how can I get there? And I, I, the only way I knew how to do that, that would maximize my chances of that was just to go back to graduate school. So that was a thoughtful, a thoughtful decision. It was a slow decision, but whether it was purely unbiased, I don't know. I don't remember. Of course, hindsight bias is (laughs) 2020. So So what are you helping? So you work with companies, you know, you get out of school, get your PhD in that you go work for companies on their decision-making. How are you influencing their decision-making in your role? 
Right. So I specialized for a very long time in consumer decision making, which was really just doing a lot of consumer research, like what drives the decision to purchase A versus B or the decision to be loyal to one company versus another, um, things like that. Then it was in you know the space of consumer insights, but pulling in what I know about decision making into that work. And then about th- three years ago, I launched my own consultancy and went in a direction where I also helped people or tried to help businesses make their own good decisions. Um, and now I'm actually working <laughs> for a legal tech company, which is a perfect fit, if you ask me, um, Clio. Um, and they make practice management software. And so now I'm their senior director of decision science, and I do both. I help them understand consumer decision-making, and I um, employ decision-making models throughout the company to help them make. What were some of the decisions you helped uh, companies make? Everything from how do you price um, or how do you present pricing options to clients or customers, side by side, one at a time, high to low, like things like that. Um when do you lean into messaging that's rational versus identity forming? What does that mean? Well, okay. So for instance, some products, some services, some categories, especially when they're newer or maybe people don't know enough about what they do, um, it tends to often help to lean into a rational decision-making framework to kind of get consumers to weigh the pros and cons. Because just like everything else, anything that is new to you and not routine, you tend to slow down and try to evaluate. If it's not new to you, you tend to kind of use these shortcuts. Slowing down and getting people to really like creating friction so people can create, uh, so they can evaluate the trade-offs for more uh, like soda, Potato chips, bottled water. It's like, you know what that is. You don't have to make a rational decision about it at that point. Right. So so would you try and speed up the decisions that the consumer is making by putting in different heuristics or making it knowable and say, hey, you you don't have to worry about this. This is an easy choice, that kind of thing? It sounds dark, but it's sort of controlling the the shortcut. It's like creating the the shortcut from A to B so people will buy your product without having to stop and think about whether it's really the good thing for them. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of how how I think about it. Yeah. Now, does that translate over to people's personal decision-making? Did you work in a different field other than just the consumer? Yeah. So career decisions, big one. Should I take a job A, job B? Should well, I get a divorce? It seem like that would be more challenging. You know, wh- okay. I'm curious. Why do you say that? Well, Before because I, I think when you look at something like how do we get a consumer to pick A over B or how do we get them to take action when they might there might be a lot of friction? How do we remove the friction? A lot of that, it seems like, would be data-driven, right? You get into the areas of personal decision-making on how I uh, am going to make decisions about a relationship, right, uh, or a, a career decision. Those mm-hmm. seem to be are going to need a lot more personal data from you to be able to advise on how you make the decision. Right. Right. And not just on me, but on the options. And that's, you know, honestly, I think most of the time people get stuck because they think they have all the information to decide between these two jobs or these two careers or, or what have you. And they kind of spin in circles. They're like, well, I could do this, but I could do that. And they go back and forth. And it's really the lack of data, the lack of 
information that's often causing that kind of analysis paralysis. They think they're analyzing, but they're really just, they don't have enough information to properly analyze yet. And so I kind of direct them to finding that information. Do you, so how do you go about doing that? And if I'm in a, in a personal relationship, I'm making a career or a marriage decision or whatever, you know, some big personal decision in my life. Mm-hmm. Is there a framework that you would walk somebody through, or is it just a matter of you getting enough background information and you can say, well, Hey, here's, here's what I think. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I never give advice. Oh, I never okay. tell somebody. Right. I let the decision, and I do. I do this for two reasons because I don't want. I, I know there's research on this as well that we evaluate risk differently when we're making our own decisions versus making decisions for someone else. Sure. So I don't really want to mess with that. And in not what only, way? well, in, depending on the circumstance, sometimes. Well, have you? Okay, here's here's a great example. Have you ever had a friend come to you and say? I don't know about this person I'm dating, blah, blah, blah. And you just say, well, just dump them. Just dump them. Get out of there. Easy. Dump them. But when you're in it and somebody tells you that, you're like, but you don't know it all. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I'm feeling. So we're maybe more risk seeking um, with other people's lives. Yeah. Or risk averse, depending on other types of circumstances. When would be an example where we would be risk averse? I can see a very straight line between risk seeking behavior without mm-hmm. because I don't have to feel the consequence, right? It's oh a God. lot less real. If I give you advice that leaves you single and lonely, well, I'm not eating right. a tub of hagen dazs by myself on a Saturday. You right. are right. I don't right. feel it and I'm not envisioning it. Uh, I'm not envisioning the real consequence. If you get bad legal advice, bad financial advice, well, you know, that person who's giving it to you, they're not putting themselves in your shoes of what True. it looks like when it goes wrong. Um, but you are when you're listening to it and evaluating it. So how right. could we be more, more risk averse with other people? Um, just being aware. I think a lot of it, of, um, good decision-making, um, is really about overriding what comes naturally and knowing, like knowing, like I am not going to evaluate risk the same way as they are. Sure, sure, sure. So- uh, I guess we're never going to always line up, you know, one-to-one uh, on a risk profile because you might be more aggressive with health risk and less aggressive than financial risk than me, right? right. So who's riskier? Well, I don't know. We have the same, you know, right. if you average those two out, we're in the same spot, but it's just different categories of life. But we, what would be an area where if someone is receiving advice or, or giving advice, like I'm giving advice to someone, um, an area where I might be more likely to be risk averse than the person receiving it. My mom is a great example. Okay. She was a parent. She's like, be safe. That's a and funny. It's, it's very contextual. <laughs> you said that and Sanger and I, I both, like, oh, both knew exactly what yeah. you were talking about. <laughs> you know, so that, that that reminds me of this funny, funny um, American Idol moment. So there was this guy, you remember how like they would always have people who just obviously couldn't sing. And oh, they'd bring him the in best. there. And those are the best episodes. So they bring in this guy, you know, they're in like, I don't know, Atlanta or something. And this guy comes in, you know, poor guy, just lives in, you know, some little yeah. tiny town. Like no one's ever heard him sing except his grandma. She told him he was really good. He goes and tries out. He's not good. And they're sitting there like, dude, yeah. you're not good. Like you're very bad. Yeah. You're really bad at singing. Um, <laughs> and he's like, wow. Like, you know, he's just trying to process it. Like, dang. And so then at the end, you know, he's dejected. He's not being mean. He's not really being entitled. He's just kind of like, okay, all right, I guess. And he goes, all right, well, 
I guess I'll leave. Uh, be safe. And they go, what the dude, what are you talking about? Be safe. You don't say that. Were you threatening <laughs> us? And he was like, Oh, I remember that yeah. episode. And this guy, he's sitting there like, you know, I mean, he, he was just, is that a threat? So, Does that sound like, like a threat? <laughs> he's like, what do you mean? I'm just saying be safe. And they're like, right. we don't know. You don't say that to people. He goes, uh, well, that's, I mean, that's, you know, people say that all the time. <laughs> right. I thought that was such a fascinating, like, cultural divide, right? Yeah. Yes. Cult- yes. Absolutely. Like, Southerners, you totally. say be safe all the time. Oh, yeah. I hear it all totally. the time. Yeah. All the time. All the time. 100%. <laughs> so, I mean, and so- this is. This is a great example of how we often just use scripts to do, to you know, we're not really making decisions. He's not like rationally he's deciding to say that. He's just following a script. He's not even general, genuinely concerned with their safety. No, he's just he like, that's care. what you say when you he's leave He's probably thinking, I hope you burn in hell. But, you know. <laughs> <He might. laughs> yeah. Well, then he would have said, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> right. But right. so that that's perfect example, right? Your, your mom is a lot more risk averse than yeah. you. That's like, you know, my mom, same way. Obviously my grandmother, if I tell her what my vacation plans are, you know, she's like, Ooh, well, you know, I don't oh, know if okay. I do that. Totally. I'm, like, I'm just going to go for a hike. <laughs> well, yeah. I wouldn't do that if I was you. Oh man. <laughs> I, well, I'm not asking you for vacation planning advice ever. <laughs> no, that's why I don't. Oh gosh. I hope my mom, she's probably going to hear this, but I don't tell them a lot because of that. I don't tell yeah. them a lot of what I do because of that. But in advising people, that's why I often, you know, opt for the process. So rather yeah. than telling them what to do, or I know I'm going to either be risk averse or risk, um, more risk, uh, uh, risky, but I would ask them to go through the process. Like, what do you need mm. to know that you don't know? Let's get that information first. What is yeah. the likelihood that, that would you- be the out of the gate first part of the process is what do you need to know that you don't know? <laughs> It depends. It totally depends because some people come to me and they have two job offers and they really don't know which one to choose. And some come to me and say, I don't want to know. I don't know what to do with my life. I could go any direction. That's more open-ended, right? So if if it's a binary choice, I would think the framework probably works a little better. It's more defined anyway. It is. It is. It's it's much more constrained. But but that question, what do you need to know that you don't know is it's relevant no matter what. It's just when does it show up? Like, when does it come up in the conversation? It's always part of the process. Then I think, I think it has to be, we always have to ask ourselves. Well, that. Walk, walk me through the, okay. So I, I come to you and I say, all right, I I'm really wrestling with, you know, go down path, a path B. Right. What, how are you going to walk me through the process around that decision? So I adopt kind of a loose adoption of um, the expected utility model, which is kind of a, just a basic model of rational choice that's been used in economics and, you know, learned it in sociology as well. But it's just really a combination of what are the potential options? What are certain conditions or what ifs that could happen? Um, and then what are some outcomes that it could occur? And so like one great example is um, I want to go for a walk. Should I carry an umbrella? Um Yes, I could. No, I might. I, I, I would or no, I would not. But there's this condition. There's this what if that's kind of a wild card. Is it going to rain? I don't know. So I'll, I'll walk through clients through the kind of what ifs. Um, should I stay with my husband or not? He's going to therapy. He could change. So that's kind of a wild card. What if he changes? What if I divorce him and he actually turns into the perfect man? Then what? So I walk through that stuff. And then it's the outcomes, the then what's. Yeah. 
and then you put values on them. And that's, that's, that's really the most important thing. Um, not the most important thing, but a very important thing that people don't do enough of is they don't put numbers on things like, um, or values. It doesn't even have to be numbers, but my husband could go to therapy and he could turn into the perfect man. Okay. He could, but what's the chance? What are the likelihood? What is the likelihood of that? And we don't often ask ourselves about, well, what are the chances of that? Um, I could take this job. I could make it anything I wanted. Yeah, but what are the chances of that? 20%, 40%, You can actually, and then you can actually think about, well, what do I need to know in order to know that number? And it's the same thing with outcomes. So say I stay with my husband. He doesn't turn out to be the perfect guy. I'm here, I'm with him for another five years and he's still, he's still an, an asshole or whatever the reason, right? right. Um, what On a scale of zero to 10, is that a two? As in like really, really bad? Is that kind of a six? Like, yeah, I could live with that. Like, let's put a number on it. Um, and then you just kind of, I just, you just do the math, the chance times the outcome. And that's kind so of- So it question. seems like if, if you're going through that sort of framework of looking mm -hmm. at the probability outcomes, you would need to then also weigh- the importance, right? This has a 20% chance of happening, but it's my number one thing. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Like, um, and this was came up with COVID all the time. Well, it's such a low chance of getting it, you know, blah, blah, if blah. If I get it, I can't breathe ever again. Right. right. Or I think about my my mom yeah. <laughs> who is, you know, uh, if she gets COVID, she's older, I she could die. Like that's that's a zero on a scale of zero to 10 of like how good that is. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Super I remember cool. talking to a friend of mine. I really was not worried about it at all. It's like, whatever, who cares? Right. I already have asthma. Like we're good. You know, I already, I already have COVID basically. Right. <laughs> so, so he goes, yeah, but um, I talked to my friend who's uh, a doctor at, you know, some fancy Ivy league smart guy. Uh, and he goes, this new variant, and I don't even remember which variant this was. It's all, it's like causing blood clots. Right. And then I was like, oh, well, now I'm concerned. Right. I wasn't and concerned about an upper respiratory infection. I am concerned about blood clots in my legs. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't that happen. worried about it either until I had a doctor come into the office and he and his wife both had masks on. And you're like, mm, well, and you I'm like, uh, Right. Oh, and yeah. that is how other people's decisions influence yeah. yours. Right. It, it influenced me because I'm like, this guy should know what he's talking about. You know? Totally. And that's, that's <laughs> Did an you example. put him in the office and go, you can take it off if you want. No one's watching. <laughs> right. Why don't you take it off? <laughs> I'm telling you. Like, <laughs> you think it was all performative? <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> but I, that's a great example of like how we don't make decisions because we're weighing the pros and cons, but because we trust somebody who's already made the decision. It's like, he's already decided to wear a mask. We trust him. So we're just going to do yeah. what he does. Mm -hmm. How often do people do that in the wrong way? Right. People rely on experts or others, not even experts, but just other people. I think experts, a lot of experts aren't experts to be mm -hmm. quite frank. I think a lot of people have, they get an idea and it's a, they think it's a good one and it might be, and they think they know. And this is, this is where, you know, this, what you see is all you, there is to see thing comes in. Um, they might write a book, they might get on podcasts, they might suddenly they're this expert, but there's no real um, evaluation of, well, 
what are your credentials? Where did you come from? Um, like I wouldn't go to you guys for medical advice, but I would totally go to you guys for financial advice because you have the credentials, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if you had a bad experience with COVID and you wrote a book about it and now you're an expert on COVID, I don't know if I would, I don't know, you know, you're not Fauci, right? Um, but for, you know, in most cultures, if you have charisma, you can sell anything. And I think that could could hurt people when they, when they follow the lead of someone like that. I think politicians, they're, it's a great example. Um, a lot of people vote for the guy they would like to have a beer with. Mm-hmm. I, you know, think about all the guys you've had beers with, like half of them, I wouldn't want to drive Idiots. home. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but we think that way because, you know, and then we yeah. vote for an idiot or we don't, I don't know, depending, but that's, that's another way it could go the wrong way. I'm um, so, dating. You know, I, dating I talk kids. with people, you know, I just had some conversations recently and one of the people in the, in the group was just espousing some stuff that I didn't even get into it yet. Cause it was so, it was conspiracy type stuff. QAnon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't QAnon, no, but okay. it was, it was stupid. Just, you know, they're, they're, it was sort of along the lines of they're putting microchips in the vaccine type level of, Okay. Yes. So we're like, le- like conspiracy theory layering. Yeah. yeah. And, and so how do you, you know, people that are in your social circle are people that you care about, right? But I would think by definition, and you want those people to make good decisions. But I, I was actually wrestling with, do I talk with this person about this crazy mm-hmm. theory they have? Or do, or do I just back away from it? Because I'm not sure I'm skilled enough to change the mind of somebody that's mm-hmm. so off. You know what I mean? I mean, they're, they're just like, misinformed. And yeah. how do I go through a process of fixing that you, if I'm so inclined? Right. You go to my website <laughs> and I have a guide. I have a guide on my website called How to Change a Misinformed Mind. And it was featured in Fast Company, which is my way of saying using a substitution question to say, hey, you should because Fast Company featured it. Do you see how I'm using a trick here? But anyway, um, yeah. And in Social that guide, proof there. It is. It's yeah. it's a nudge. It's not a rational reason to to download my guide. Um, <laughs> but um, it's a lot of it is. First of all, do you want to like what is what is the what are the pros and cons of even trying for you? But if you decide to, and I think if it's someone you love, like if it's a parent or a spouse or a friend. A lot of um, what gets people to change their mind isn't facts or information. It's who you are. So mm. it's the reverse of that. It's, you know, in jujitsu, it's position before submission. You know, you have to be in the right place to kind of do, uh, to have any sort of impact. And a lot of that is building relationships. And that's why I think this tendency we have to feel uncomfortable around people who don't agree with us and then pull away. And then we kind of like, have coffee with them. And then we spit all these facts out and think they're going to, they should just get it. Like that's the wrong, it's totally the opposite way to go. It doesn't work that way. You have to be in their circle. You have to be in their lives. They have to trust you. So when you detach, that's betrayal. They don't feel connection and they won't listen to you. So maintain that connection. That's really more important than what you say. And then facts, who gives a shit about facts? Like it's really about stories it's about experiences. That's where people really connect. Using stories to make a point rather than statistics is the best way to go. 
you know, you see that a lot in uh, State of the Union speeches. You know, the presidents will, rather than just espouse the facts, they'll say, you know, oh, little Johnny and, you know. Totally. There he is. Stand up. Yeah, stand up, little Johnny. Totally. The trick is to tell stories that are backed by fact. And I think a lot of people tell stories and think that a story is fact. And unless you have a lot of people with the same stories, um, you don't know if that story is an outlier or kind of a weird, freakish situation. I mean, does it matter? When we're talking um, like politics, I don't even know if it it matters if it's an outlier or not. It's like if if it's a story, uh, it could be a made up story. But it's oh, and it is. It, it, a lot of times it is it's a totally fake story. Um, and it's not really supported by the facts, but you were kind of already leaning this way anyway. So here, you know, we're going to feed yeah. you and feed the ideological monster that lives within your mind a little bit with this story. And then you're good. You're set. That's how QAnon does its trick. That does its magic. It doesn't come out with facts. It comes out with questions. Have you ever noticed that uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, 5G and, they, and then they need you to make the connection and then you make that connection. You feel like you own that, that story. That's so and, true. God, yeah. they, they're like all it's, the conspiracy videos are like, look at this, you know, the score on the Atlanta Hawks, you know, or Atlanta Falcons right. football game was 42 to nine. And, and Trump, when he was, his watch was set to 429. And right. so that's, what is he saying? Atlanta? What does that mean? You can figure it out. You figure that out. Like, of course it means something. And just by asking that question, you're implying there's something not quite right. So yeah. you're throwing bias into that direction and yeah, I mean, our brains are natural storytellers. We churn out stories all the time. We don't need help. But when we're helped along and it's it could be really dangerous. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I think every we're, we're picking on the QAnon a little bit. I, and it's it could go. It, it's it's every everyone. Direction. Every direction. It's, have, you it's heard the, sides. have you heard the Tom Segura skit about how he thought um, Tommy Lee Jones was gay just because his dad said so? <laughs> yeah. And then he just runs for like for years. He's this doesn't validate it doesn't verify it just goes on until one day somebody who knows tommy lee jones is like no dude not true (laughs) no no it doesn't matter it could be about anything it could be about which lipstick works you know we just believe stories yeah well be careful who you trust especially your dad (laughs) (laughs) i'm not saying that All right, so so I understand what your your point about if I'm if I'm to try and make a decision to change a misinformed mind, right? You know, keep the relationship, share stories, be open, those types of things. It's, yeah, it's okay. sort of kind of drip on them, you know. Continue to to and hope that it's eventually going to work, right? You're probably not going to get success right out of the gate in the first. I've never had anybody, you know, I, I share something with them. They go, "Oh, you know what? Now that I now that I hear you say that." Maybe all this climate change stuff, maybe I was completely wrong about, you know, now that you've said what you said, right? Yeah. But what if I want to challenge my own beliefs? I think there are things that we all believe that may not be true. And we don't know which ones those are, oh gosh, unfortunately. You, and you asked me, he asked me this question a few months ago. He goes, so you know, some people believe like wacky stuff, right? I go, yeah. He goes like crazy conspiracy theories. I go, yeah. And then there's people that believe like sort of somewhat believable stuff. Yeah. And then people who believe like very believable stuff, but you just know they're wrong. Yes. Right. He goes, so what do you believe that's wrong? I go, I don't know. Well, <laughs> Couldn't answer You don't it. know. That's yeah. A- <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. How do you find that out? It's a, it's a good question. It's like one of my favorite topics to, to talk about. You know, can I just, 
I'll just tell a little story about this because it's not really a specific story, but it's an, an example. Like when I when I talk to atheists who are firm atheists, and I'm not just not to say there's anything wrong with being an atheist or anything wrong with not, but there's there's a tendency to think that they're free of belief because they don't believe Christianity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet they believe a completely different thing, right? And it's hard to, to it's hard to escape belief. It's our brain, it's efficiency in our brain wanting to cling on to something so we can we can have an, an anchor and we know how to move on. We know how to make a decision. The only way I know how to avoid that is to constantly doubt myself, um, which is also goes against who we are as human beings. You know, we want confidence and we reward confidence. But I think oftentimes we equate confidence with overconfidence, um, and that overconfidence bias is the problem. So, you know, do I really know that? How do I really know that? Um, and I've been told, like people have told me in my career, you don't have a, you know, you're, you don't have a lot of confidence, do you? And I, I find that so insulting because I have enough confidence to to doubt myself. Like it takes confidence to, to question yourself. Um, and it's very different than low self-esteem, right? It takes a high self-esteem to believe that you can be wrong and live through it. So constantly doubting is really the only way yeah, I, I think, know. you know, if you just go through and begin to say, you know, is what I believe backed by facts or am I just, am I just right. following the crowd? Am I just going along to get along? You know, that, that type of thing. That's good to kind of question every now and then. It is. I mean, even like the COVID vaccines having like microchips in them, like why not ask, well, is that true? Why just dismiss it off off the bat and then find the evidence and you'll find out it's not true. And that's how you, you don't believe something that's wrong. Yeah. A lot of times I get it. I feel like there's not a whole lot of marginal utility to call back to our nerd conversation earlier in changing someone's mind in the first place. You know, unless it's like something that's dramatically what you, harmful to What do you them. mean? I mean, even if like I have a friend that believes some cockamamie conspiracy, mm-hmm. but what, well, you know, what am I doing? Like, am I, is it really holding him back? Maybe he just needs, needs something to occupy his time. You know, is he going out and like, you know, taking action on this? On you know, that's stupid. something yeah. else. You know, he's going up to Washington and I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. That's a different thing than just like, you're, you're really deep into moon landing videos on youtube right (laughs) okay you know i'll let you have that you know what you just said is really interesting like maybe they have they just need something to keep them occupied like sometimes i wonder if the best way to break people free of these um beliefs is to just give them something else to think about or believe in it's sort of like the caesar milan dog whisperer like don't don't think about the doorbell dog like look at the treat like let's focus on the treat that maybe it's just preoccupying their mental bandwidth with anything other than that so that it just sort of fades away in the background something to try yeah. i mean i think most people they're looking for something right you don't mm-hmm. latch onto a conspiracy theory because it's rational rational clearly um <laughs> i mean some of them the the tricky thing with conspiracy theories is some of them some of them are true are real right, right. right. some conspiracies really happen but there's a there's a different we almost need different language on this whole concept because some conspiracy theories are in a sense like almost all theories that kind of ascribe like a malintent to some group Mm -hmm. are a conspiracy theory right you've 
you have a theory upon about the conspiracy, but we have kind of allowed the term to shift and not mean a theory about the conspiracy of others and mean a theory that's completely irrational and wonky and stupid. And that's what it means because so many of them have been wonky and stupid. That's a great, that's a great actually point. You know, in science, there are all sorts of theories and some of them are supported by evidence and some of them have proved to be unfounded. And so maybe that's the way to think about it is here's a data backed conspiracy theory versus an unfounded conspiracy theory. A theory is just something you can test with data, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I almost never believe, you know, when I hear opinion-based news reporting and those types of things, when they ascribe intention to somebody's actions, well, you know, they, they didn't vote on this because they hate poor people or whatever, whatever it is. Well, you don't know what their intentions were. You know what their actions were. And so you can comment on their actions, but when people start commenting on intentions, president doesn't like this, or the president hates these people, that's, you don't know that, you know, that, May or may not be true, but you don't know that because they're they're not telling you what how their brain is thinking. Yeah. And just noticing that, I mean, if you're doing that while you're watching the news and you're noticing that, then you're already leveled up, right? Like yeah. because you're seeing the you're 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 catching the human brain doing its efficient thing and creating a story. So what part of life have you ruined for yourself because of your understanding of decision making? <laughs> My I mean, I would love to do a survey of like, you know, a hundred guys and ask them, would you ever date someone who is a decision scientist? Because I think I just have a really hard time either with men who are like, doing dumb, dumb shit, or can I say, I'm sorry if I drop it. (laughs) Or on the other hand, who um, are uncomfortable because they think I'm constantly judging them for doing dumb shit. Like, okay. I just, I'm just like, because they know that, you know, they they, they worry that I see something I that think they don't this even is me see telling you. stories though. I don't know. Yeah, are they telling they're you funny. this or are you just saying this? You're inferring this. I hear, honestly, here's you, what I hear. You, is this a conspiracy theory? <laughs> it is. See, I'm making this <laughs> up. This is, this is, because I'm human. I know. Here's what I'm I could say. I wouldn't, as a guy, I wouldn't care. I mean, but care I, what? You say that. If somebody was they, like, I'm a decision scientist, I'd be like, okay. I mean, I think about... You're not going to feel judged on all the decisions you make? That okay, but it's a little unfair because I obviously host this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd be like, oh, okay. You know, cool. We have a lot to talk about. <laughs> but, you know, if I wasn't, it'd be like, let me, I'll, I'll, I'll give you something that maybe, maybe I could be less biased on. If, if I was dating a woman, she was like, I'm a relationships counselor. Oh, yeah. I'd be like, yeah. nah, I'm out. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm You're never going to be able to do anything I'm not, right. I can't wait. Right. You can't do anything right. right. She's got all the tools. It's Everything's going to be, well, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't date somebody like that either. I think what I hear people say a lot, like men is, well, you always have to know it all, don't you? Or you, um, I just, I don't know. I think I just maybe can't keep my mouth shut enough and let people do that stuff. <laughs> well, men, a, a man wants to provide and a man wants to be a leader and men get and very be right. And, well, but being right. But and they're, they're not being right. But being right <laughs> is a part. Being right is 
perceived as being a component of leadership and pr- providing, right? Good point. And yeah. so in in our particularly in our modern era, how can I provide for a woman? Well, I am not going to go kill a buffalo, right? I'm most of us men are not building things with our hands mm-hmm. to provide money. We are we are making money in our brains. We are making money because we know things. Ah, and so we go out into the world and the only thing that we have as to exercise our manhood is to provide with our knowledge. And then we come back home and we're told, you know, then we don't know shit anymore. Or we go into other areas of life where we're threatened because we don't know anything. I used to feel this way about cars all the time. My dad did not teach me anything about cars. That's true. It's not, we're not a car family. He, he likes cars. He knows cars. I didn't have an interest in it. I didn't learn anything about them. I'm not a car guy. So I remember being like at high school, college, my friends were car guys and they'd always want to talk about cars. And I was so uncomfortable that I would bullshit. I would pretend that I knew about cars and people would ask me like, oh, so what kind of, you know, I can't even like make a joke out of it because I don't know the names of the thing. They'd be like, oh, well, you know, what kind of, you know kind of suspension you get on this truck and like, oh, dude what are you talking about and finally i just had to own it and be like <laughs> dude i don't know and, and everyone was like yeah. you know i remember one time i was driving in a new truck i'd bought and these guys um they're sitting in the back seat we're going to dairy queen they go and what kind of exhaust you got i go i don't dude i don't know I go what do you mean you don't know like you gotta know that I go, I don't know. I turned it on. It goes, and then we're good. Like, I don't, I don't know. And, but I had to be really, really secure in my masculinity to do that. And so I think to, to come back to your question, a lot of men, they really want to, they really want to have the information, not because they just want to be right. And I think it's a disservice to say like, oh, they've got an ego problem. It is an ego problem, but it's coming from a different spot. It's coming from this since uh from this want to provide so what i'm hearing you say is that i am emasculating them basically yeah like not on purpose but probably (laughs) (laughs) i just can't you know when i see someone anyone like running head first into a disaster like okay you can call me a know-it-all later you can tell me like i'm judgmental whatever word or label you want to describe (laughs) me as it's not positive but first let me just save you from yourself um yeah maybe i should just some of them are wrong like some guys can't be helped because i i get a kick out of guys uh men coming in to to my office and they kind of reveal themselves to be that same type of man that you're you're probably most frustrated Mm -hmm. with where they come in and i will say um usually before i like explain a concept I will gauge their level of understanding and I don't want to insult someone by saying, have you ever heard of right. the federal reserve? Have you ever heard of mutual funds? You know, cause it's like, really there's the possibility that I hadn't heard of that. Come on. So I'll say, how familiar are you with it? Right. That's right. a trickier question to answer because you know, it's open-ended and some people might feel like, Oh, like I've got to display my knowledge right now. But really all I'm looking for is I never heard of it. I know a lot about it well, or it's whatever. A, it's but, a good yeah. So, so people, when they come in uh, and I say, how familiar are you with whatever, right? The concept of marginal utility and someone who's clearly never heard those two words ever before will go, this is the classic male response. Well, pretty familiar, but you go ahead. 
No, no, the <laughs> best is like, well, I'm familiar, but you tell her. So you she'll tell her. <laughs> oh it to her. So that's terrible. That's that. You're oh, right. That that's, you're right. Okay. That's the best one. Yeah. That's the best one. And so I look at those guys and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to make fun of them for it. I'm not going to embarrass them. I know and he knows that he doesn't know anything. And that's fine. <laughs> I don't need her to know that he doesn't know anything. She probably also does. Right. So we all know you don't know anything. That's okay. We're going to pretend. We're just going to pretend for your sake. And that's fine. That's It's totally fine. But I'm, I've got to look at that guy and recognize he's never going to. like right. He's not going to have some moment of self-awareness tomorrow morning. It's I totally hear you. And I, I try so hard to be very, to lead with questions rather than let me tell you what to do. Like, have you thought about this? Or what do you think yeah. about that? What do you mean by that? Um, even that gets me into trouble because I, I, well, I don't know why, but like, but I hear you like the worst, the worst thing that I think I could be is that actually person, you know, the person who's like, well, actually, <laughs> well, I, yeah. I just, I hate that person. Do not want to be that person. Um, yeah. But who knows? Maybe it slips out sometimes. But that's 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 my answer to your question. I will forever be single, and um, that's okay. Are you just so we're gonna, we're gonna have you back and just explore your relationship decisions. You know, this we're is, gonna it, dissect your dating life next time. Only if we all are drinking beer or something. Right. I mean, <laughs> we can make that happen. <laughs> hey, thanks so much, Doctor Kabiri, for being on. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Tell people again where they can find you and they can learn more about your work. Yeah, um, you can find more about me at yournextdecision.com. Guides, blog, all that stuff. Sweet. We'll link it on the uh, in the show notes and on social media. We'll, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. My takeaway was that I that I really liked was when she was talking about when you're looking at making decisions internally about your own beliefs is looking at what asking the question, what do I need to know that I don't know? And I've had that conversation with with people that I do coaching with. And the way that I had sort of framed it with them was whatever question you're asking right now, there probably is a question that should have come before that. And look for that question that comes before that question. So what do I need to know that I don't yet know before I move forward? That was what I got from it. My takeaway is that not everyone who has a misinformed point of view needs to be convinced of their misinformation. Not everyone that we talk to not everyone that I talk to who is incorrect in their beliefs needs to be convinced by me to change their mind. Uh, sometimes it's not worth it because of the, the uh, impact of their misinformation or it's not worth it because of the impact that that revelation may have on the relationship. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at decidedlypodcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. 
Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.